Welcome to For the Culture Podcast, where we and our guests discuss our lived experiences in science. This podcast explores how our work and mere presence impact our culture today. This podcast is an unfiltered conversation and really more of a therapy session where we can vent and um, hopefully the audience can benefit from our experiences. This podcast provides a platform for emerging and current scientists to discuss their development as individuals and community leaders in order to help and improve our culture. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of For the Culture Podcast. Uh, you're here with your co-hosts, uh, Kofi Kamakush, Lawrence McKinney, and Dr. Ian Saunders. Well, actually, we, we should be calling him Dr. Lawrence McKinney now, because uh, May is swiftly approaching uh, and he'll be graduating. So uh, Dr. McKinney, Dr. Ian Sa- Saunders, and myself, uh, we are here with another amazing guest, Dr. Henry J. Henderson III. He's a native of Mobile, Alabama, currently residing in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he received his, his BS from Southern University and AM College and his PhD in, in integrative biosciences with a concentration in cancer biology from Tuskegee University. Following his graduate studies, he completed his postdoctoral training at Vanderbilt U- University Medical Center, where he also served as an FDA AACR, uh, that's uh, American Association for Cancer Research, an oncology educational fellow. Currently, Dr. Henderson is an, is an oncology medical science liaison in the cancer di- diagnostic sector and aspires to become a medical affairs executive. He's a proud member of the AACR and the American Association for the Advancement of, of Science. Uh, additionally, he serves as the co-founder of Black and Cancer, an organization aimed to increase Black representation in, in cancer research and medicine. Outside of his professional studies, Dr. Henderson is an avid hiker and fitness enthusiast, of which we'll ask more about moving forward. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome Dr. Henderson to our podcast. I think Lawrence has some uh, some sounds that he, he edits in. <laughs> yeah, we got to get us a soundboard. That's on the agenda. <laughs> Donations, <laughs> Donations appreciated. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I, I'm not sure if we actually discussed the question order. Um, so I'll just get it started. Uh, do you want to just give give our audience um, uh, some brief, some brief background? I, I just gave the you know resume cliff notes, uh, but is there anything else you want to add in um, regarding how you got started in in STEM, perhaps, and then we can kind of take off from there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess it all started because I wanted to be a veterinarian as a kid, um, and my mother was extremely uh, open and very adamant about getting things that we found interesting. So we had a lot of pets. Uh, at one point I had a microscope in my room, I had a whole lab set up. Um, I used to bring in bugs. I had like this insect terrarium thing that you just put the bugs in and you just watch them. I used to catch uh, roly polies and caterpillars and all type of things. And so I wanted to be like a veterinarian or a wildlife biologist. That was like my dream job, what I wanted to do as a kid. Um, it even got to the point where I used to carry around this giant uh, animal encyclopedia. It had all the animals in the world from A to Z. And I knew all of them. I just like recited at like family gatherings. It was like that. I was like a weird kid um, who used to <laughs> spit out random animal facts at Thanksgiving. That was me. Um, and so it started from when I was a kid. My mom really, uh, really nurtured that. Uh, that interest. Um, but when I got into college, um, I majored in animal science for undergrad, and I still wanted to be a vet. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and at this point, I hadn't met a, a black PhD at this point. So I didn't, I wasn't even exposed to, um, to scientists in the traditional sense like we're used to. Um, and so I com- completed my PhD, not my PhD, my, my bachelor's in animal science. And then I went on to Tuskegee to actually do another master's because Tuskegee has the uh, only black veterinary school in the United States. There's not a lot of them, but Tuskegee has the only black one. And so that's the school I wanted to go to. I still kind of thought I wanted to be a vet. Um, did my master's. Uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I did my master's in goat breeding 
um, specifically it was in genetics, um, but my project was actually breeding goats. I was on the farm pulling kids, that whole setup. It was a, it was a good time. Um, but one summer, you know, during my, my master's uh, thesis, I did a rotation in a cancer lab at Tuskegee. And it was like the most intriguing thing I've ever seen. Um, just simply seeing sales under a microscope was enough for me to be like, this is great. And so um, I think I was coming up onto the application cycle to apply to the PhD program because at Tuskegee, um, they have different PhD programs, but mine, uh, integrated biosciences, it was spread across the entire campus, right? So you had people who did biomedical, you had people who did plant pathology, you had people who did virology. And so we were in different sectors around the campus, but we all got our degree in the same field that makes sense. We just specialize in different concentrations. Um, and so I applied, I got in, and I decided I didn't do, you know, didn't want to do the vet school route. Um, and I just got into a PhD program, and I worked in the same lab that I did that rotation in. Um, and, you know, we can get into how grad school was, but it was a whirlwind. Um, but it was still one of the most um, fulfilling times because I was doing something that I really, really liked to do. Um, I still like animals. <laughs> That's something I still, I still like animals. I think my dream job would be like, opening like a doggy daycare or something like that, but I got to make money. So uh, I, stuck, I stuck with my education and, and, and I'm also doing something that I love. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it. But happy to entertain any other deep questions or specific questions. Uh, but my question is, uh, a lot of our audience goes to mixed population schools, so PWIs as well as HBCUs. Um, so coming from your background, you just expressed, you know, you didn't see someone who had a PhD growing up. You had an interest in science. Did that really channel into why you chose Tuskegee? And then also, why did you choose some of the other schools or avenues um, that you went through to get where you are now? Yeah, yeah, of course. So just for my undergrad, I chose Southern University uh, mainly because, and this is a very bad reason, but my best friend had got in. <laughs> and she was like, hey, I'm going to Southern. And I was like, oh, what's that? <laughs> um, let me see what it is. And so I applied and I actually cheered in college too and paid for my out-of-state fees. And so that was another way for me to do it too, because I was also an athlete. Um, but I did it because she went first and then it was actually the best decision I ever made in my life because Southern University, I'm not going to toot his horn, but one of the better HBCUs in the country, not to say all of everyone else is. Um, but as far as Tuskegee, the reason why I chose Tuskegee is because I had, like I said, I wanted to go to vet school and it was the only black one there. And I was really adamant about going to Tuskegee because they produce 75% of African-American veterinarians. So that was the reason why I chose it. The reason why I stayed to do my PhD is because I liked my advisor at the time. Uh, she was um, very eager, very young. She was a young PI, so you know how young PIs are. They're like, they have to publish, and so they're going to push you to publish too because they need their job and you, you need to get out. Um, and I was her first grad student. And so if you've ever been someone's first grad student, you understand the pressure that is in that lab. Um, but I stayed there because I was familiar with the lab and I was comfortable. You know, I didn't have to move or anything. So I ended up just staying. Um, and I actually really, I don't regret my decision at all. But what I would say is when you're choosing the school, no matter if it's a PWI or HBCU, you have to make sure they have the things that you need to develop into whatever profession that you want. So, you know, I am pro HBCU, but I do believe that you should choose a school that serves you uh, in whatever capacity that is. Uh, but Tuskegee and Southern University, they served me at the time. Awesome. Um, your, your background is so interesting. And uh, shout outs to your family for supporting you early on and, you know, getting you those microscopes and just allowing you to be uh, inquisitive. Because I think from a lot of our guests in the past and people I know, like that, that, that same story resonates. Like we hear that a lot. So the importance of like developing curiosity early on in your childhood develops, you know, potential scientists. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about like those other people in your lives, uh, your life, like mentors or people that helped you along the way to kind of keep you in the straight and narrow path and not get lost and fall out of the quote unquote pipeline? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if I start back from, I'm trying to see where, what's the earliest place. I had a science teacher in middle school. His name is Dr. Morrow. I thought it was so funny because he had a doctor and he taught middle school, um, but he was a, a Caucasian guy. 
but he was so quirky. And I was like, he's kind of cool. And so from that moment, I was like, oh, I think a being a scientist or a veterinarian would be kind of cool. So he was like the, my first introduction to like a weird, and like when I say Bill Nye, he was like exactly like that. Like he just reminds me of Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, he was a white man. Um, and nothing wrong with that, but I just remember him very vividly because he's always calling me in class. And I used to get the answer right because I used to watch Zoom. I don't know if you guys remember that show, um, but I used to come on PBS. Um, and it was like a bunch of kids doing experiments and stuff. Um, it came on in that same timeline where it was like Arthur, Dragon Tales, and then Zoom came on and then other stuff. That's when you didn't have cable growing up in the hood. You didn't have cable. So you have to watch PBS. And so uh, I just watched Zoom a lot. And so I just knew all, I knew all the, the questions, the answers to his question. So that was my first introduction to somebody who was influential to me. Um, when I got to college, uh, I wouldn't say I had a professor that, um, that kind of kept me on track. I actually was answering questions in this um, session. Let me get the, the, the name of the session, right? It was called Metacognition. That was the name of the, the session. And it was about learning how you learn, metacognition. So being understanding of how you learn as a learner. Uh, and the speaker, her name was Dr. Sandra McGuire. Um, and nobody was raising their hands in the session answering, asking questions, but I was. And so I just kept asking questions and asking questions. And after the end of the session, she comes and she says, hey, why don't we just do lunch? You seem really, really interested in what I had to say. Um, tell me about your background. And so... We did lunch and she gave me like a scholarship simply because I was inquisitive in the session. Um, and I didn't know that she was a distinguished professor at LSU. Like she is a chemistry professor, but her husband, he also taught at Southern. And so she was, this, and if you Google her, she comes up like everywhere. Her name is Dr. Sandra McGuire. And so that was the first person who kind of saw something in me that I did not at the time. Um, and so we talked and I kind of told her what I wanted to do and she just told me to keep going until you can't no more. And so that's what I did. I just kept going. Um, and so in my training, those are the, or my undergrad and graduate school, undergrad days and my uh, early, early education days, those are the two people who I think are more, most influential. Now, when I got to grad school, it was a different story because you join AACR, you join um, AAAS. Like it's so many people who look like you. It's so many people who are wanting to do the things that, that you're doing. Um, or doing the things that you want to do. So it was really easy to, to get mentors because there is a surplus of, of, of Black people, but on a grander scale, it's not that many of us. But when we get together, it's a lot of us, if that makes sense. And so um, I've developed, honestly, I have so many mentors, I can't really name them all, but I am extremely grateful because I saw men, um, Black men in uh, professorships I saw black women leading labs and leading departments. I saw um, black men and women being MSLs, something I discovered I wanted to do early on in grad school. Um, and so using my village of mentors, um, I think that has really propelled me into where I am now. And I still call it my mentor um, for anything. Like if it's a salary negotiation or if it's, hey, I want to get this promotion, what do you think I should do? Or, hey, they're not using me for this leadership position that I want to do. How do I go about addressing this? And so I feel like mentors can fit into any capacity of your life, but I think they're vital to our development, not only as a professional, but even in our personal lives as well. I mean, that's extremely well said. I mean, there's so many question avenues I can dive down right now. Um, I think the, well, one of the main things that, stuck out to me about what you uh, recently just told us about, you know, some of your background, but also some of your personal ethos uh, that you've used to kind of propel yourself to where you are right now is um, just keep kind of going till you can't anymore. Um, how has that manifested for you pro professionally and or academically? Yeah. Um, so I guess I can, I can tell you from, from grad school, like I said, I already knew I wanted to be an MSO. I actually met my first, uh, MSO at ACR, I think it was like 2017 or 2018, something like that. Um, and she gave me her card and I looked at it and I was like, Hey, what is this? What's a medical science liaison? And she explained it to me. I was like, Oh, this is great. This is, this is, Hey, this is something I want to do. I don't have to do an experiment and I can still talk science and still follow the research and, you know be great 
but not touch a pipette. This is amazing. Um, and so I took that go into you can't no more. Honestly, that pushed me out of grad school into my postdoc and into my position now. Because when I, when I take from that saying, go into you can't anymore, that's literally doing anything and everything under the sun to get to where you need to be. So for me, that was having information interviews with over 40 MSOs before I even had my first interview. So when I got into my interview, there was nothing they could surprise me with because I knew the job back and forth. I knew exactly what I needed to do and show up. So I got, I got probably every one. I had about five MSOs interview in my first go round. I got every one besides one, and that's because I wasn't in the territory. But other than that, like you know, I showed up and showed out because I knew what to do. Um, in grad school, I had a. I'm out of here in four and a half years. That's it. I'm not staying past four and a half. I don't care if people glorify five or six or seven. That's not going to be me. Um, and it's really weird that people glorify the longer you've been in grad school with how, like how much I guess superiority you have. It's not the case. Finish your stuff and get out. Like it's not. Honestly, I see people who've been in grad school for eight years and seven years, and we're doing the same thing. It's it's not that serious. Um, so <laughs> I use that to get out of grad school in the time frame that I wanted to do. Um, I use that to get into my postdoc. I said, I'm going to be here for two years and I'm going to go out. I did that. Um, and so, you know, knock on wood, everything that I put into the universe, I hate the word manifest. It's, I feel like it's overplayed. But everything that I claim that's for me has become for me. Um, you were talking earlier about your ACR fellowship. Could you speak on that a little bit more? And also some of the importance of belonging to these uh, groups or organizations as you're transitioning on through different phases of your science journey? Yeah, yeah of course. So the first award I got, so I have a great history with AACR. It's a really great organization. So the first thing, um, I think the first award I got is the Minority and Cancer Research Award. I feel like every grad student who's black should apply for this award. Uh, <laughs> like that should be something you should do. That should be on your checklist of things to do. Uh, so I think I got that one in like 2018. Um, and then the next thing I did when I was in grad school, my, uh, not grad school, when I was in my postdoc, my PI, she is involved in literally everything. You Google her name, she's in everything. And so she was like, hey, why don't you do this um, Hill Day but with ACR is where you go to Capitol Hill and you kind of lobby for cancer research and funding. And so I didn't think I was going to get it, but I applied for it, got it. And so I spent a, uh, like a day on Capitol Hill lobbying for cancer research. It was the most interesting time because it was right before the COVID shutdown. And so nobody was asking us about, hey, why are you guys here for cancer? You're asking, so what is COVID? I'm like, honestly, I have no idea. I'm here to talk to you about why you should fund researchers in the United States. So that was a fun thing. And then the next thing was really opportune. And this is why I tie in. So you have to do things that serve you, right? So this opportunity would have served me the best because it would have helped me get to where I needed to be. So this next fellowship I got um, was with the FDA. So it was FDA and AACR as a joint program. But it was in um, oncology, drug development, and regulatory affairs. And so I knew as an MSL, I would have to need some of this knowledge, some of this background knowledge um, on how drugs are developed and how they, how they leave the lab, how they go to the public, trials are ran before we can deem this safe to give to people. Um, that was opportune for me to develop those, that skill set before I hopped into an MSL interview. And so I knew that I did the fellowship. I did it in conjunction with my... Um, with my postdoc and it was all virtual, thank the Lord, because I could do it in between my experiments. So this is great. Um, and so when I got into my MSO interviews, that was something that people really thought highly of as well. Wow, you've done this work. I mean, you was in this fellowship, this prestigious pre fellowship, and it's the first time they actually started it. So I was the first in the first cohort. Um, and so that kind of set me up. And so I always saw people, you know, create a backwards timeline. And I learned this um, in a fellowship that I did, in a, internship I did at MD Anderson. It was in cancer prevention. Um, we created backwards timelines. I never heard of that. But what it is, is basically is you, you start with your end goal and then you map out what all you need to do to get to the end goal. And so at the beginning of the summer, we mapped out, hey, these are all the things I want to accomplish, right? And so on week two, we started working towards accomplishing those things. And so I use this, this concept in my personal life. I use it in my professional life. Um, like, for instance, I have to go to ASCO, and people who don't know, that's the Association for Clinical um, Oncology um, at the big conference in June. I know I have things to do, so I'm already working towards accomplishing those things I need to do before ASCO gets here. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of how I use those fellowships to kind of serve me in a position that I wanted to get um, and how I take those concepts, like using backward timelines to, to kind of conquer all the tasks that I need to. You spoke about the MSL role and for our listeners who are, you know, thriving at this moment who can't Google what an MSL is, could you give a, a, a high level overview of what that job is or entails? And maybe list, uh, maybe give like two or three things you like about your job right now. Yeah, yeah. So very, very high level because it differs from company to company and from therapeutic area area to therapeutic area. Uh, the high level, you are the middleman between the organization, which either supplies the diagnostic tool or the therapy, and the provider, the person who is giving this diagnostic tool to the patient um, or therapy to the patient. So you're that middleman between the organization and the healthcare provider, basically. And by middleman, I mean, you're the scientific or the disease area expert in whatever product that is. Um, and so that's very, very high level. Um, and to kind of paint a better picture, um, I, will, I like to call it, I don't like using the word consultant because we're not consultants, um, but in a sense, in, in the word, it's kind of what we do, right? We are there as a resource for the provider. Um, we are there to help them whatever they need if they're using our company's uh, either product or therapy. Um, we give educational talks to nursing groups, to um, other clinicians. Um, we go to conferences. We keep up with the data that's coming out um, within our sector, like within our company. Um, we have tons of tons of meetings <laughs> and tons of tons of emails. Uh, but that's kind of just a gist of what we do. It's a lot deeper depending on companies. Sometimes you're supporting clinical trials, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you are uh, leading programs or or um, ad boards in your in your territory. So how the MSO work um, is we have territory. So usually there's a team of how many tend to, sometimes it's one because if it's a startup, you only have one MSO, right? But if it's a larger company, you probably have 22. My company, we have around 12 or 10, but we cover every sector of the United States. And so we have different regions that we cover. Um, and so you just do all of that within your specific region and you're allowed to live in any one of those states. Um, or you can live somewhere else and totally do it virtually. So I've seen that too, especially during COVID. Um, it's getting a lot more flexible. People are um, you know, becoming a lot more remote. I think people like that better, specifically the providers, because they're able to have a quick conversation and not, you know, slack on their patient care, which is the most important thing, which is why we do what we do is for the patients. Um, so, and it just that's kind of what it is. It's uh, you're the middleman between the organization and the healthcare provider, but the scientific expert and the medical expert as well. Oh, and you say you wanted to know like things I like about it. So I'm really type A. So I like things structured. I like things in, a, in, in line. I like agendas. I like itineraries. So I'm that guy on the trip who likes to pl a printout of what we're doing before we do it. Um, but the MSO role is really unpredictable sometimes. Like you may have a meeting on your schedule and a doctor can't meet that day. And he calls you like, hey, I need to talk right now. Like you have to stop what you're doing because you have to help that, that doctor because he may be in the room with a patient. So you have to help him, right? Um, so that's the thing I kind of don't like is the uncertainty sometimes. But what I do love is that we're so close to the science. We're so close to patient care. Um, I thought that if I left the lab, I would leave that. Like I would miss that part and give that up. But honestly, I'm closer than the patient than I ever was when you think about it. Um, we're all basic scientists. It will be years before our molecule that we figured out if we inhibited this molecule, it'll stop metastasis. That'll be years down the line, right? But if you help a provider, you know, get better clarification on a piece of data that can impact patient care right now, that feels a lot better. And so we're so close to, sorry, that's my favorite part is that we're so close and so patient-centric. Oh, man, well said, well said. Um, Again, I feel like there's so many avenues uh, for questions, um, but I will bring it back to, um, so where do you see yourself, you know, five years, 10 years, assuming, I mean, maybe you want to be an MSL forever, I don't know. Uh, but if you do want to be MSL forever, please tell us why or and or, you know, without obviously, um, you know, telling telling too much because uh, you're currently MSL, so you probably don't want to say say too much about where you're headed next. Um, yeah. But can you just give us some um, idea of 
you know, what's what's next for Dr. Henderson? Yeah, yeah. So my ultimate goal is to become a medical affairs executive, um, be that VP of early oncology development, be that VP of medical affairs. I just want to be an executive in the medical affairs space. Um, now, I do see there is some value. There is an immense amount of value um, in being an MSO. Number one, you're learning how the providers think. You're learning how they, what questions they ask, what's most important to them. You're understanding from a structural standpoint how medical affairs work, right? So getting that knowledge and getting those skills for the next couple of years is vital for me. And so for the next couple of years, I do see myself continuing to be MSO because I believe this, the, the tools that I'm developing and that I'm gaining right now in my current role, unmatched. And so my next goal is to become either an associate medical director um, or um, so it's scientific director, depending on company. They're kind of the same thing, but company to company, they kind of had different titles. Um, and then from there up, you know, then medical director or scientific director. And the next up from that is VP of somewhere, man. And so that's where I see myself going. Uh, I mean, I'm not ashamed just to tell my to tell my my path and where I want to go. I know people like to say, you know, work in silence, but I feel like people should be exposed to the type of things that you can do. Um, I don't like that work in silence. It don't work for us. We need to know what we can do with our PhD. So we need to be telling people what you can do. I feel like work in silence are things in your personal life, but if you're professionally, you should be reaching back and helping people out. Um, and it's great because I know a couple of my friends, like I've been working with them and they're now MSLs too. And so now we're all in medical affairs and we all, you know, hope to be medical affairs executive. Um, and so, once we're there, we can change how things look in the boardroom, right? Because they don't look like us at all, right? Um, but it's crazy because our our population of people are affected the worst by cancer specifically. And that's in every form. That's from healthcare. That's from diagnosis to prognosis. It's just literally everything. Um, and so us making decisions high up um, and representing the population that's affected worst by cancer, I think it means a lot. Um, and so just how we're underrepresented in, in the sciences, we're even more underrepresented in medical affairs. And so getting in, learning, um, learning from great people, either black, white, it doesn't matter the race, learning whatever I can from anyone so that I can make a change uh, in that particular sector. Um, we're big on letting people know also that they have transferable skills, especially our PhD students and graduate students. A lot of times uh, academia is, Push to us in a way that we don't necessarily understand that. You know that you're good at running a Western block, but you don't understand strategic planning goes behind that. Um, so could you kind yeah. of talk about how some of those transferable skills from your PhD helped you to excel as a medical science liaison? And also, um, how did you transfer some of those skills in your postdoc? Um, maybe the soft skills too, you know, the communication, you talk very well, you have a good reputation with a lot of folks. Could you talk on that um, a little bit as well too? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Though, though I'll tell you my number one transferable skill that sticks out to me the most. When I was in my postdoc, I'm type A, but my PI, she's type AA. And so when she writes an email, there's you have everything you need in that email. There's no need for you to reply. There's no need for you to follow up and ask something. You know, what's the everything is laid out, it's highlighted, it's underlined, it's in bold and red. And so that skill communicating effectively so that there's no need for a response or a follow-up at the first time. That's an amazing skill to have because people love when you can write a thorough email and everything is addressed. People love that. They don't have to keep asking you questions. Like, oh, everything's right here. This is great. That's number one. So like, communicating effectively. That's number one. Um, speaking effectively. That's number two. How we talk about science in our PhD is much different how we talk about science in the MSO role. And I'll explain why. Because most times you're talking to providers who have no idea what DNA methylation means. They don't, they don't know what that means. Like, they're just, they, they're here to help a patient. They don't have time to get deep into the weeds. And so how we think and how we speak really deeply about our science, we have to take that down a notch, right, to the point where anybody can understand, where a nurse can understand in three seconds. She's like, hey, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I needed. She doesn't need how the cell cycle goes from G1S. She doesn't need to know that. But she needs to understand the concept behind the process, right? And so understanding how to 
bring our science down to a level where someone in our family can understand it. Because most times people in our family aren't scientists. And so you probably have even experienced this explaining what you do to your, your grandparents. They're like, okay, so what do you do? What is it? Okay, so you treat people or what, what is it? And so explaining that and being able to, that helped me a lot, being able to um, effectively communicate my science to like my family and stuff. Um, that skill um, in my MSO role is wonderful because I'm able to communicate really complex things really, really, really quickly, um, but with enough detail where the provider needs the information that they can uh, to use in, in, in further endeavors. Um, that's number two. The last one would be organization. Like there is no way you can get in this role and not have some type of organization skills. There's so many things coming at you. And if you don't keep track, you just up the creek without a paddle. Like you just need to do that. And it's kind of how we do. Well, I take that back because I know a lot of people who are unorganized in grad school and they did just fine. But I was the type of person where I, I planned out my experiments for the entire week. So I'm like, okay, I need to do this. In order for me to do this, I got to do this. In order for me to do this, I got to do that. Remember that backwards timeline that I was talking about? That's the organization skills that you need, right? You need to know what's your end goal and what I need to do to get to there. Um, and then smaller things like interpersonal uh, skills, learning how to work with people, knowing how to be a people person, uh, learning, learning how to say um, things without coming off rude or, you know, that's an important skill. Having interpersonal skills and learning how to work with a team um, that's, I would say out of all of them, that's something that could probably make or break you because if nobody likes you, they're not going to work with you. Um, and so being likable, uh, you know, presenting well, these are all things that you need, um, to excel. Thank you for that. Those, those are some key, key points and hope everybody wrote those things down. Uh, definitely interpersonal skills. I, I've, 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 you know, through internships, I've, you know, realized even through, you know, through virtual in a virtual setting, working in an industry, like those are some great skills to have, and being able to communicate effectively via email is so so critical. Um, I kind of want to go back to you, you briefly touched on some of the disparities in, in oncology, and so I had a question about uh, health equity and what ways do you see yourself, you know, becoming that that medical uh, affairs executive? How can you advance health equity? and the role that you're hoping to, that you will achieve? Yeah, this is a great question too. Um, so I think it was mentioned in my bio that I'm a co-founder of an organization, Black and Cancer. Um, and one of the principles of what we do is scientific communication and having our people understand what the hell we're doing, basically. Um, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm a cancer biologist, I'm a molecular biologist, you know, I, I investigate this protein. Nobody cares what that means if they don't understand what it means. And so scientific communication, I feel like that is a really broad term. But when we break it down to scientific literacy, understanding what cancer is from a very, very, very simple level. My nephew can tell you what cancer is, and he knows better than some people who've been doing this for years. Because I've been able to explain to him the, the, the simple, in the simplest form what it is and how to explain it to someone else. Um, so as a medical affairs executive, I think my emphasis would be on scientific literacy within the community um, because that's how we make informed decisions. That's how we make informed choices. And that's how we ask questions to our providers to understand how we're being treated. And so I think the tool that we uh, lack within our community is standing up for ourselves within in the waiting room, in the patient room, because we just believe everything that the doctor is saying because our family, well, I don't because I know, but <laughs> our family, you know, they don't understand these complex terms. And it's not because they aren't smart. It's not because, you know, they, they don't have an education. Some, sometimes they just don't understand scientific terms, you know? Um, and so being able to bring all that knowledge um, that we have, give it to our community in a way that they can understand it so they can make informed choices, either for a loved one who's been diagnosed, for themselves, um, or just to be educated um, all around for their own knowledge. I think that's most important because that's how we get people uh, enrolled in trials because they understand, hey, this is what a clinical trial is. Oh, it's not, this is not bad. This is something that can help. You know, these are things that they are able to make these decisions on. And so I feel like the scientific communication, the literacy part, that's, that's most important to me. 
Uh, and so as a medical affairs executive, I definitely will implement, um, you know, community um, outreach programs that we can improve scientific literacy, not only in the black community, but it's important, but just in general, because I feel like it, it, it trickles down from the top. And, you know, if everyone doesn't get it, then nobody's going to get it. I mean, we learned that through COVID. Everybody became a scientist during uh, the pandemic. And honestly, I stopped being a scientist because everybody else was. So <laughs> I think I think having that that tool set um, and having that initiative is it will probably be, uh, you know, even though it's really, really, um, as a scientist, it gets really frustrating. But I think we have to realize, you know, the tools and the gifts that we're given, we have a duty to give these back to our community. And so uh, I'm more than happy to create that initiative once I'm at the, in a position that I can. I am doing it on a smaller scale with my organization, Black and Cancer. Um, but on a larger scale, I feel like we can make monumental change. So has COVID made your job uh, easier or, or harder? I know you mentioned that um, things are more virtual now in large part because of COVID. Um, so speaking specifically towards scientific communication uh, regarding KOLs and also um, regular, you know, layman, so to speak, um, would you say that COVID's made your job harder or, or easier? Well, I joined at a, at a time where it was during COVID. And so I haven't experienced being an MSO outside of the COVID era. Now it's starting to get a little bit back to normal. And so, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the MSO job description, it'll probably say 70 to 80% travel. Um, I think I'm filling that for next month because I'm traveling like three times. But other than that, I, I like the idea of being hybrid, not only for my personal life, because I'm able to complete things I need to do. You know, I don't feel overwhelmed. Um, our generation is a big self-care generation. We are, hey, if this job doesn't make me feel great mentally, I don't need it. We don't, I ain't got no money, but I don't need this job, right? That's that's kind of how we are. Like it's empowering, but it's also kind of scary. Like we really don't care right now. But uh, I think having that hybrid approach to my job makes it all the the, the better. I love getting out and speaking for groups. Um, I, I'm a shy person by nature. A lot of people don't know that. But when I get in front of a crowd and talk about science, it's a whole different person. Um, and so I love getting out well, and talking. Ex introverted extroverts. <laughs> What's up? Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm one of those introverted extroverts, right? You get some science in front of me, I I'm going to talk. Um, and so I really like getting out and talking to, to clinicians. I like doing that. But I also like being home and handling stuff that I need to handle at home while also doing my job. Um, and I think a lot of companies now are seeing that's what applicants want. The candidates want that when, you know, it's a candidate-driven market right now. Um, everybody's asking for a remote or flexibility. And people are understanding the culture now as we shift, especially in the States, people want to live more than they work. Uh, and so having a job where you're able to do what you love by helping patients, but also having the time that you need to do the job effectively, um, I think that's that's been most rewarding to me. And so I would say COVID was kind of a blessing and a curse. It allowed us to think about what's most important, which is our health, our mental health, um, and other things, family, our own personal lives. Um, but it also hindered us. So now we're so used to having um, backup iPads or backup computers when we're talking that when we go out in person, we're like, oh, dang it, what is that again? I can't pull this up because I forgot. And so having to get back to that, that's kind of different. But I feel like it's making us all stronger. So I feel like the people who went through stuff during, or who were working through COVID, either through school or had to, to um, navigate a job through COVID, after this, I mean, who going to stop us? Facts, facts, facts. Um, <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. So I'm big on, um, we had spoken earlier before the show, but, you know, I'm in a part of my life where I'm trying to match my passion with my goals um, and also, you know, staying God-focused and finding my purpose and all of those things. So I briefly would love for you to talk about how do you find your purpose? How do you find balance? Um, we know that you do some things outside of your work schedule. You have family you've spoken of as well. How do you maintain with that? And how do you keep that in line with, with, with what your you think your purpose is and also uh, with that balance? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question because... I don't think I found my purpose, but I am fulfilled, if that makes sense. I love waking up doing what I do every day. Love it. This is it. I love doing what I do. But is it my purpose? 
I'm not entirely sure because I really want to be like a music producer or a dog trainer or uh, something else, like an avid hiker. Like if I could do anything, you know, like I don't know if this is my purpose, but I feel fulfilled what I'm doing. I know I'm making a difference and it makes me feel good to do the work. Um, and so that's kind of how I approach everything. I think I took this from Insecure, the show, if y'all watch it. Molly and Issa were having a conversation and East, Molly went to um, therapist and her therapist was like, well, does this serve you? Like, does this serve the, the relationships that you have? Do they serve you? The things that you're doing? And so I took from that show, I'm like, you know what? I'm only gonna do things that serve me. So if it doesn't make me feel fulfilled or I'm not happy doing it, it's just not worth my time. And so that's kind of how I navigate. Now, as a graduate student, I was a wreck. Henry now versus Henry in grad school, and like year one of his postdoc, is not the same guy you're speaking with today. I, I probably was depressed. I just, it was a mess. I've learned that things that, the things that make me happiest, I do best. And so if I don't like it, I just want it so. And so I found myself in a position where I really love to hate cancer. Like, Love to talk about it, love to talk to clinicians about it, love to, to create solutions to problems. I hate what it does to people. And so that love-hate kind of powers me into doing what I like to do in my professional life. Now, in my personal life, same thing. If it doesn't serve me, it ain't for me. Thank you for that. Yeah. So we all know 2020 was a crazy, crazy year. Uh, that's kind of how the idea of this uh, podcast came about, out of tragedy and out of like just needing to vent and to release all that energy that we've been holding in to share our experiences as this podcast came about but also a wonderful organization called black and cancer if i'm not mistaken started in 2020 as well so could you please uh talk about how how the idea came about and uh what the mission of or the goal of black and cancer is of course, um, I was forced into this position. <laughs> I tell people I'm doing. I did it by force. It was not by choice. I think what happened was during the summer of 2020, everybody was already a mess. Like we were all frustrated, and then we saw the killings of black men by the you know police, and that kind of sparked a lot of stuff. I think the the the, the first organization to pop out was like Black Birders Week, if I believe. Um, they did something and they brought out you know, all the black birders and did like a little conference and everything. And then other things started popping up, like other little other groups on Twitter. This is all, in, if you don't have academic Twitter, it's a mess, but I just get one. Um, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a mess out there, but it's good to have. Um, and so Twitter was just blowing up with different little groups left and right. And so originally uh, I was like, oh, what if we do one for black people in cancer research? Like just specifically like bench stuff. Um, and my good friend, now she's my good friend. At the time, we didn't know each other, but we followed each other on Twitter. Her name is Sigourney Bell. She's a PhD student at um, University of Cambridge in the UK. And so she, somebody added me. I was like, hey, I think Henry would be a great, because I was already vocal on there because of my postdoc mentor. So I was already vocal on academic Twitter. Somebody added me. I was like, hey, you should start this. Or you should do this. I was like, not y'all choosing me to do something I didn't ask to do. So <laughs> no. Um, and then Sigourney, she messed, she DM'd me. She was like, hey, you know, what if we do this? I'm like, oh, I really don't want to do this. But since everybody is like pushing me into the forefront, um, me and Sigourney kind of launched the first one. I was like, it was literally like a, a three message DM exchange. I uh, even had the Slack channel up in the same day. It was like black and cancer research. And then as we started going, it was like, well, it's more than just, if we, we already are like low in number, but if we bring it down like that, um, like to research and in medicine and then advocacy, like we're even smaller. So what if we just combined everybody? So that's why we called it black and cancer and took out the research, but we wanted people in medicine, wanted people who were in the lab, wanted people who were MSLs, wanted people who did everything under the sun when it came to cancer, because we all had one common enemy, which was the disease. And one thing in common was we're all black. And so that's kind of how it started within, this is all within like three days, by the way. Um, and so from there, we did not know that it was going to take off the way that it did. And honestly, we still, every day, I'm like, what the hell did we get ourselves into? Because people 
we can start something because once you start doing great things, people are going to keep expecting greatness from you. Now, it's that can be bad and good. Number one, you're stressed out because you got to be great. Number two, uh, it kind of pushes you to keep, you know, keep uh, producing like things like talks or organizations or events and stuff like that. Um, so the main concept of, of our organization is pretty simple. We want to promote black excellence in cancer research and medicine. We want to increase representation within those fields as well. So that's how we do that. And so we do it two different ways. We do it through mentorship and outreach, through education. So we have a current program right now where we are working with some cancer centers across the United States, as well as in the UK. Um, we're placing students there for summer internships. A lot of times when you apply to these PhD programs or med school, they say, hey, you need research experience. Well, we're doing that for these students because we're gonna get them that experience. So that's not even a barrier. You can't even say that to these kids now because they have what they need. So that's number one. Number two is we have a program called the Cancer Awareness Project. And it's simply that we want to bring that science, like I was mentioning earlier, down to a level where my nephews can understand. They're all under 10, where they can understand what's going on, what is cancer, um, how we protect ourselves, um, some strategies for cancer, I hate the word prevention, but uh, risk reduction, um, as well as um, just being able to ask questions and learn from ourselves when it comes to the, the, the disease in a way that everyone can understand. Um, and so that's kind of what we do. And we have some exciting things coming up. Like we, our next conference is in London in October of all places. Like they were, right? Like I'm like, we didn't sign up for this, but we are really grateful that we have so much support. So we have a, a board of people who are helping us. It's not just Mr. Gorney, like we have a whole team of people. And honestly, without them, we it probably wouldn't be afloat because having a normal day job and trying to do something as profound as we're, we're like what we're doing is really, really difficult. I don't know who, shout out to all my entrepreneurs out there because I don't know how y'all do it, but I appreciate it because I can see it's a lot. Um, but it's all worth it in the end because like I said, I hate to love cancer. And so this is kind of propelling, this is me feeling being fulfilled. Like this isn't my purpose, Ian, but it's me feeling fulfilled in what I do. Um, and so, yeah, we have a conference in, in October, it's in London, um, uh, sponsored by Cancer Research UK. Um, it's a two-day conference, and we'll be out there talking about what we talk best about increasing representation in cancer research and medicine. Um, the next thing is for us to be invited to the White House, but I'll let Kamala Harris figure that out. Well, I'll let VP do that. I don't even know. Yeah, she's, yeah, she keeps the stuff going. And not, I, I think I was talking about this earlier, about me replying to emails. She was like, hey, did you look at this? Check this out. Somebody's going to give us some money. Reply to it. Reply to it because you're not going to reply. I'm like, okay, you're right. And so without her, like, we would not. Uh, shout out to Tiborne Bell because future's Dr. Bell because she's keeping the thing. You got to support black women and she is giving her her props because this is all her. I'm just kind of just here. <laughs> I'm just kind of here. Um, but we were, we were a good team and we really make it a, a point to do everything together. And so I think a lot of times when you have like a male and female like duo is like the male is always the face of stuff. And so it got to the point where people were like, hey, we want Henry to do this. Hey, we want I'm like, no, Sigourney's going to do it. And then I'll be in the background because it, we wanted to push black women to the forefront because, you know, they have the same expertise as we do. And so our whole thing is um, we propel black women within our organization. And so I let Sigourney be the face of everything. And I'm just there, you know you know, as support. <laughs> Reminds me of Lawrence on our team. He's definitely our, uh, he's our chief and master, keeps us together too, tells us to reply to those emails. <laughs> you got to play to our strengths, man. Everybody, you know, I'm 5A too, so I'm like, it's got to be organized. <laughs> Looking at Black and Cancer. Actually, once again, just shout out to Black and Cancer because I actually wrote my first recommendation letter for my mentee through the Black and Cancer like mentorship program. I'm not sure if you mentioned that in your rundown of the current Black and Cancer sponsored programs. Um, but shout out to you. I think the mentorship program just started in, what, last yeah. fall? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we have a mentorship program, and then we even got funding for postdocs to go from postdoc to professor. So I think it was like $300,000 or something like that. Like oh, we wow. got, yeah, we secured that money. Because a lot of the times when we think about representation within academia, 
like it's not a lot of black professors. And so our solution to that was, hey, let's get some money so that we can fund postdocs from their postdoctoral work so they can have money. And when they go to these interviews, it's like, hey, I already got 175K right now. I just need y'all to hire me so I can start up stuff, you know? And so we were able to do that. And shout out to the Emerald Foundation because they're the ones who uh, reached out to us with this opportunity. Um, and so um, they, they've been monumental in setting this up and we're looking forward to the next one. Um, but also, there's also a lot of pressure. like, ah, we got a postdoc fellowship. Now we're going to do another one. And next thing you know, it's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be something else. Like, oh, it's never going to end. And so it's just having this awesome thing that has spiraled into greatness. We have to keep the same momentum. It's super stressful, though. Don't don't tell people. Don't let people. It looks great on the outside, like on the Twitter and the website and all the amazing things that we're doing. But deep down, it's we are working. <laughs> so I'm very like into figuring out the mind frame of like, you know, balance. I'm a Libra. I really I'm not too big into astrology, so I don't know why I say that, but <laughs> finding balance in everything. Um, so I guess my question would be too, you know, you spoke briefly on making sure that we empower black women, especially in our field, um, especially in cancer, um, as biologists, chemists, whatever facet that comes from. Um, could you briefly talk on your experiences being an African-American male um, and going through these different facets of your life, um, being both in academia, going into industry, and then in entrepreneurship as well? Um, has there been any instances or things that you've learned from that, being a Black male? Um, and I know that you spoke of, of course, you know, giving back to our sisters and making sure that they rise up to their knowledge, well, not knowledge, but the acclaim that they deserve as well. Um, could you briefly go in a little bit more detail with that, too? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I was in graduate school, I had a black professor named Dr. Clayton Yates. Um, he's at Tuskegee. Yeah, I think everybody, if you were in prostate, y'all know Kaizo, y'all know Clayton. Um, <laughs> so uh, he was influential in me, like for me seeing a black man run the lab and run a great program. Uh, he was great. A lot of people didn't like him because, you know, he's Dr. Yates. He says what was on his mind, but he's great. He's a brilliant He's a brilliant man. And so I was like, wow, I want to be just like him. And so I wanted to be in his lab. I really wanted to be in his lab so bad um, because I just wanted to be under a black male and have him train me. But my professor, my, my PI that I chose, um, which I do not regret at all, uh, it was a better decision for me to get out on time. Uh, but anyway, that's another story for another day. Um, but being a black male in science, like it's already very daunting. Um, in my postdoc at Tuskegee, it was different, right? Because everybody's black. It's amazing. You got black PhD students. You got the vet schools there, so you got black veterinary students. So everybody's working to get a doctorate, and everybody's black. So it's like you. It's wonderful. You got your people with you. Now, when I chose to do my postdoc at Vanderbilt, it was a different story. I had one other black guy on my entire floor, and he happened to went to the HBC, I think it was Alcorn, uh, and he went to Penn State. Um, and so for his PhD, but we connected because we actually, we didn't speak to each other for the first day. We just kind of made eye contact. It's like, bro, I see you in the next lab. Okay, guy, you bet. I see you. How you doing? Fantastic. Fantastic. I hope you have a good day. Hope you have a better week. Mm, I hope your month is full of successful days and a lot of great ventures. I hope you just come up, brother. You got something you want to say? You got something you want to say? Yeah, we should go out, get drinks. Don't get drinks? Yeah. How many drinks? Two, three, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All of them. And so the next day, I was like, bro, what's good? And we just started chopping it up because he hadn't seen a familiar face on the floor. He had been there before me. And so, you know, he went from being the only black man on the floor to now it's two of us. So that that was kind of cool. But what wasn't cool about it was even in the department, like, there was just not black faces. We weren't there. Um, and I'll take you, I'll take it, take you back to graduate school when I did my internship at Indy Anderson. One of the things we had to do was find people who we wanted to do like these interviews with, kind of like an information interview, basically. And my job was to find, or my my want was to find a black professor, like a black person who had his own lab. In the entire institution, they didn't have one black man. And I literally asked, I was like, hey, Dr. Sean Chang was one of my really, really great mentors. Um, she's a, um, 
what what she does? So her background is in public health, but she's in cancer prevention. She's really great. One of the better mentors I've had over the years. Um, I asked her, I'm like, hey, I'm looking on you know the website and I don't see any black men. I see black women, but I don't see any black men who have their own life. She's like, you know what? Well, no, he's retired. I mean, honestly, I don't think we have any. She says, wow, this is a real problem. I was like, well, you think? <laughs> like, who am I going to talk to now? And so she asked around. And she was like, yeah, I confirmed. And there's not one black man here at MD. And MD Anderson is huge. If you think about the medical center, it's huge. There wasn't anybody at Baylor. <laughs> there wasn't anybody at UT South, uh, down the street at uh, the health center, health science center. Like it was anyone. So I was like, this sucks. This, this, this kind of motivates me to keep doing what I want to do. Because the way she told me is that how academia, how professors are chosen is by like a board of like professors and stuff like that. And so if the room isn't diverse, nine out of 10, the, the faculty isn't going to be diverse. So the only way you can make a diverse, you know, faculty is to keep going up to that ladder until you're in that room making those decisions. But that's kind of how what she kind of explained to me. And I was like, well, I don't want to be in that room because I don't want to be an academic. Uh, academic. Um, but what I do want to do is change how we see the people that we see around this place. And so that was a pivotal moment. Then went to grad school, met Dr. Yates. And then my postdoc, I met Jamal, who was the only Black person other than me on the floor. And then when I got to medical affairs, it's the exact same. I'm the only Black man on my team. <laughs> Um, we're here. We're, we're, we're like, we're here in, in pharma and in biotech. We're there, but we're just, it's when you see each other, we recognize each other and we see each other, but not out of 10, we don't. And so it's, it's my job to continue to, 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 to excel in medical affairs so we can change the room, kind of how like people, our peers are doing in academia. The same thing needs to be done in, in the corporate world as well. Um, because there are a lot of great people, most notably one of my mentors, Dr. Like Ramon Kemp, he's the VP of Early Oncology Development at GSK. Um, he's a black man. And he reached out to me on LinkedIn. He goes, hey, I think we have similar backgrounds. Let's talk. Let's just have a, I'm like, wow, not the VP reaching out. Like, yes, let's talk. Um, and so we talked and he kind of coached me um, and stuff like that. Um, and so I think what he did kind of set the tone for how I would see my mentor skills. So I reach out to people all the time. If I know someone who has like a similar path or a similar background to me, I take them under my wing. Um, and then, you know, I, I let it go from there. Now you can, you know, the same, you can lead the, the, the horse to water, right? Um, but now I thought I was saying, I'm going to make you drink. You're going to, you're going to do well. Now, and if you, if you don't want to do that, that's fine, but you're going to have the skills that you need to succeed. Um, and so as a black man in, in STEM, um, I think it's important for me to not only of being an active mentor, but to seek mentorship um, as well as seek mentees. So I would actually look for people who I feel like, hey, you know, I think you need some guidance or I think that you can benefit uh, from having someone in a different field um, or having someone with a different skill set so that you can learn as well. And so I make that an active duty of mine is actually seek mentees as well as build my mentorship portfolio as well because I can learn more too. So as I'm learning more, I'm giving back. Thank you for yeah. that. Love to hear it. Mentorship is so important. We, like we, we're all firm believers in, you know, as, as we climb, we, we pull up somebody with us, as many people as possible. So uh, thank you for, for being intentional in that. Um, I'm gonna take this next question a little left field, a little different. Um, you did, you briefly, you kind of mentioned that, you, that you, uh, you might have a passion for music production, which, you know, I didn't know that. And uh, we all, are you know music producers in our own capacity so uh this is a weird question but i want you to try to think about this for a minute i want you to curate an album with like detailing your work lab family gym and vacation life what five artists five artists would you have on that album to complete your jesus christ lawrence give them five <laughs> I was thinking like a track or two. Hey, this reminds me of Obama. Five artists, dude. <laughs> okay, okay. Give, me, give me three. Give it's me like a twenty-minute question, my guy. This is five people. Hey, five people. don't don't let Obama show you up on this podcast, man. Don't let give him show three. you up. Okay, give me three. Three <laughs> artists that you can listen to for the rest the rest of your life. Okay, I'll give you three and then two honorable mention. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry. 
Number one, I have to pick, I don't know if you know who Leanne Le Havis is, but she's an R&B folk kind of singer. Um, I would have to pick her because she kind of, when Lab, that was my work, that was my pipetting music. It's calm, soothing. I'm not gonna miscount the um, the vials, so I have to start all over. So that's kind of like my calm. So I would have to pick her because she soothes me, Leanne Le Havis, if y'all know who she is. Um, number two, Jasmine Sullivan, because she's kind of the same way, but she got some ump in it. Um, so I will pick, you know, Leanne Le Havis, Jasmine Sullivan. Um, Chris Brown, because <laughs> I like to dance. And so usually if I'm playing old school Chris Brown or something like that, the laugh jumping. So that's number three. So I will pick those three, right? Leanne Le Havis, uh, Jasmine Sullivan, Chris Brown. Now, honorable mention, <sighs> Young Dolph, <laughs> simply because sometimes you just have to like play it. You have to play a, a diss track. You have to play something to get. You had a bad day at lab. Dolph is gonna get you. You gotta explain. <laughs> um, and and lastly, I think I would choose Bruno Mars. But if, if I could, actually, if I if I could do Six Sonic the duo like with Bruno Mars and Zipak, if I could do both of them. Like, do they count as one person? It counts. It counts. Because, yeah, because I'm, I, I play bass, and so it's all about the funky stuff for me most times. And so I would definitely keep that would be my track list or my or my artist. I like it. I like it. A little bit of everything. A little bit. Of, a little yeah, bit of yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to throw out Boosie, but I mean, it count Boosie counts in dope. You know, they are, they're the same. People. He'll do. He'll do a beach. <laughs> I was about thank to say, you, you. you're from down south. I knew he was somewhere in there, somewhere in there. <laughs> Somebody had to go in there. <laughs> cool, cool. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so I think we're going to wrap up a bit. I don't want to give Lawrence too much uh, work to do. <laughs> he edits uh, our podcast. But I mean, for me, closing comments uh, that I let my co-hosts uh, add in their closing comments. Um, I just, I just really like what you said regarding being a, a active men, mentor. Um, I think that's something that doesn't really get harped on uh, enough, you know, as scientists or burgeoning scientists and current scientists like all of us are, you know, we always talk about health, health, health equity and DNI and reaching back and looking as we climb. Um, but that's a very active process, you know, and I think that really can't be stressed enough, you know, that's not just about, you know, signing up to be someone's mentor or joining this mentoring program, but you have to, it, it, you know, just like all of our um, degrees and our, and our pursuits thereafter, it really is what you make it, you know, and um, when you're signing up to be someone's mentor, that's also what you make it for yourself, but also for that person. And so I just really love what you said about, you know, you're, you taking on that man, that, that mantle, you know, being an active mentor, you know, and also looking for um, when you're looking for mentors for yourself, also making sure those people are also active. Um, so that that's my closing comment. I think that can't be hard done enough. Um, I'll let Ian or Lawrence take the next one. Um, <clears throat> speaking of someone who's in their postdoc now, finishing up, uh, trying to transition, but I'm very interested in giving back and. <clears throat> trying to help out others who are similar to me and also different from me as well. It was refreshing to hear um, that you don't necessarily have to have it all figured out either. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of the our audience, I know I benefit from, I know us as gentlemen and as black men, a lot of the times we feel like, you know, the weight of the world is on our shoulders and we have to have everything plan from this step to this step to this step but it's so good to hear that there was people to help you along the way and you were also able to pivot to what you wanted to do and not give up on your passion or your goals so I want to thank you for sharing that message with not only my fellow colleagues but with me um, as, I have, as I have some work to do tonight so that's, that's a little bit of motivation so I just want to say thank you for that and continue to share your story in any way that you see fit um, it definitely helps and we thank you for coming and sharing your story with us Definitely. Thank you for, for uh, lending your, your nuggets of wisdom and just things you learned along the way um, and for having great mentors. You know, sometimes even having bad mentors can kind of teach you like, what kind of mentor you want to be, too. And so I know that's personally helped me uh, kind of realize what, you know, what I want to be and what I want to give to 
my mentees going forward. So uh, also, also like congratulations for being in this space and for, you know, lifting others and to get into that space as well. Um, just talking to my previous mentors and who are MSLs, they know that, you know, there's not many of us in it. And so um, thank you for trying to be intentional about thinking about how we can create uh, more spaces for us to kind of make that transition into medical affairs and to industry in general. So uh, continue doing what you're doing. Uh, I can't wait to follow your path and see you become that medical affairs executive. Uh, so uh, best wishes to you and your future career goals. And lastly, um, if there's anything you want to uh, promote, give a shout out, uh, family, friends, anybody in the world, uh, this is a good time to do it right now. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, fellas, for just inviting me to, to to have this talk with y'all. I love what y'all doing. I love that. Actually, it was the name in the graphic for me. It was the For the Culture podcast in y'all's heads and the flask in the background. Um, that that kind of did it. I was like, this is dope. This is good. I like that you're having these conversations because I do agree it's important to hear. It's, impo it's important to, I think the number one thing that we miss out on um, is exposure. And so if that's exposure to careers, exposure to how people got there, exposure to what not to do like these are things right so we don't hear it we don't know so that's why i despise that that thing that we have going on that work in silence thing i don't like it because in our space we can't work in silence we need to work out loud because it's, it's how we work out loud it's what other people how other people hear us how other people see us how people look at us and aspire to do what we want to do. And so I just guess I'll just leave it at, you know, you know, stop working in silence and start working out loud so that you're inspiring other people to do the same. Thanks for listening to For the Culture Podcast with your hosts, Ian, Kofi, and Lawrence. If you're new here, don't forget to click that subscribe button and follow us on social media. Help us grow by liking and sharing this episode with your family and friends. Hey, that's all for this episode. See you next time.